Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday Evening Chapel. This is the fourth and final service for the Dickerson Lecture, Holiness, whatever it says on the front of that thing. <laughs> Sorry, I should be more, be more polite. Okay, thank you very much. The Harry W. Dickerson Lectures on Pulpit Holiness Evangelism. There. Thank you very much. And it has been our guest to have Reverend Norman Moore as the preacher for the, for the week. Would you thank him for being here? Appreciate the sensitivity to, um, to God's leading. And uh, he, he is a fellow journeyer uh, with us, those of us who are called to, to ministry. So he understands that. We're going to sing some songs uh, that will help us that will help tune our hearts to sing God's praise. It's an old hymn. We won't sing that tonight, though. So stand, let's sing holy. Two, three, four. These have been good days. It's been a blessing for me to be with you. And it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit will lead every one of us progressively onward and forward in the ministry to which he's called each of us. The good news is you're closer to completing your studies here than you ever have been in your whole life. <laughs> and the rest of the story is you're close to the time when you'll enter that field of service that God's called you to and you've been preparing for. And again, the Holy Spirit will help us as we look to the word and give us guidance in that direction. I appreciate the privilege of being with you. I remember several years ago I was in a revival up in Battle Creek, Michigan. <laughs> Take your freedom, folks. Take your freedom. <laughs> And the pastor there suggested that he'd like to take me on a tour of their major industry in town. Keep quiet, y'all. <laughs> yeah, go back to sleep. <laughs> At his second and third hint, I got the impression this guy is serious about taking me on a tour. I said, well, let's do it. When can we go? He said, how about right after lunch? So we finished... Uh, grilled cheese sandwich and some tomato soup at the Partridge kitchen table and got in his little yellow Toyota and headed across town and parked in big old parking lot and climbed up the steps of their major industry. Walked inside the entrance and we were greeted by a very enthusiastic hostess and tour guide. She grinned broadly and welcomed us to the plant. She opened her palm and disclosed the hidden treasure. <laughs> It was a kernel of corn. I tried to act impressed. <laughs> she said, folks, this is how it all begins. And she distributed to each of us the mandatory red and white striped paper disposable hat, plant requirements. And we began a tour of Kellogg's of Battle Creek. You got any idea how dumb I felt wearing a red and white striped paper hat? <laughs> in a conservative suit. She cautioned us not to deviate from the canary yellow adhesive tape stripes that were secured to the tile hallways. So we followed the little lady about 45 minutes through the plant. You been on that tour? Did you get over it? <laughs> 
every once in a while she'd halt the procession with some heavy insight. She said, folks, this is what it looks like when it's cooked. We all got to taste a free sample. Remind me of chewing on a rubber band. <laughs> we continued the hike and she stopped us again and said, folks, this is what it looks like when it goes through the rollers. And it was plumb flat and we were all shocked. She continued the hike and I remember a third time out she said, folks, look through that window. See that bunch of flakes? I think she's talking about the corn, not the employees. <laughs> they evidently were predestined for a unique anointing called sugar frosted. Heading for Tony's box. And we cheered enthusiastically. At the end of the afternoon, we got to choose a, between a complimentary box of Special K or Rice Krispies. My daughter Nikki, still living at home at the time, liked to listen to Rice Krispies. Snap, crackle, and yeah. I got back to my room and I stuffed that cereal box in my overcrowded, gorilla-abused airport tromped on Samsonite. And I mused on the inside of the afternoon and concluded Kellogg's is in business to make cereal. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight to hear that? <laughs> Whole thing got me thinking about the church and what do we make? You know, some churches I've been, they give me the idea they think they're supposed to make trouble. <laughs> some do a mighty good job of it. But the Lord took me to his farewell words in Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you and surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. When you enter your ministries that lie ahead of you, it'd be a good verse to remember. No different than Kellogg's in a box of cereal is a church and a disciple. How does the church know when it's achieving its purpose? I mean, when the guys punch out the time clock and get in their pickup in the parking lot and head home for supper and sit down at the kitchen dinette with their wife and kids, he has a sense of accomplishment. Got the job done today. Filled 22 boxcars of freshly cased cereal. There's a sense of fulfillment. Well, how does the church know when it's getting its job done? Jesus said, go make disciples. How do you make a disciple? Reach the lost. Teach the believer. Obviously, you can't teach them until you first you reach them. Some churches have those functions out of balance. But happy is the church that has the reaching and the teaching ministry and proper balance. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. God answered that prayer most completely on the day of Pentecost when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit they disperse from the upper room and they, their lives are totally rearranged. What does a sanctified, holy, dedicated, consecrated disciple of the Lord Jesus look like? And how do they function in unity and oneness in the body of Christ? There's a good picture in Acts chapter 2. As you anticipate the ministries ahead of you to which God has called you, and as in time the Holy Spirit will open the door and you'll get a green light from heaven that this is 
the place and the time. Acts chapter 2 can serve us well of what sanctified, holy disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ looked like and how they behave and relate to one another. Acts 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I guess you all know that Luke's the author of the book of Acts. Pretty obvious. In Acts 1, verse 1, he begins, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The former book, the Gospel of Luke. Now, he has the responsibility of documenting what in the world is going on around here. Especially after Jesus' ascension. And like a reporter taking notes, he goes around and observes and notates and interviews and has exchanges. And his observation is written down in his report. And at verse 42, as he observed these believers filled with the Holy Spirit, sanctified for God's holy purposes for them, he says they devoted themselves. I looked the word up. The King James Bible uses the terms continued steadfastly. You know what it means? Welded, riveted, or superglued. The antonym would be scotch taped or thumbtack, just a temporary holding. Some people have a commitment that's just scotch taped or thumbtacked. Luke says these folks welded, riveted, superglued, a permanent, premeditated, willful adherence. They welded themselves. NIV translates it, devoted themselves. To what? The apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was a commitment, a weldedness, a rivetedness to these priorities. The apostles teaching. When teaching, training, equipping, development ministry was available, the folks showed up. And I'm really glad you all came here tonight. They further devoted themselves to the fellowship. Koinonia, esprit de corps, camaraderie. And if you don't like fancy words, all that means is good old buddy atmosphere. And they committed themselves to their interpersonal relationships. And they had concluded, if I'm not there, they'll miss me, and I'll sure enough miss them. And there was a connectedness among the, the believers. They welded themselves to their interpersonal relationships. Further, the breaking of bread. That references to the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And further, they devoted themselves to prayer. Four priorities Luke documents that these folks welded themselves to. Well, it makes me pause for a minute and question all of us. What's our level of devotion? How welded and riveted and superglued are you to these biblical priorities? We all have room for improvement. Let's look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I have to tell you, in my years of traveling ministry, I got to admit, I have been in some churches that were literally filled with awe. Awe! Oh, 
That's not what he's talking about here. I've been in other churches filled with awe. That's not what he's talking about either. What's translated here, A-W-E, means mind-blown amazement, shock, surprise, serendipity, unanticipated joy. All the believers were together and had everything in common. We're together in the chapel tonight. Our anatomies are positioned under a common ceiling. We're together. That's not what he's talking about here. When he says all the believers were together, that term refers to a unity and a harmony and a oneness and a peace. And we need to exhibit that togetherness here on this campus in our mutual ministries and areas of service. We need to exhibit that togetherness in the body of Christ as we're dispersed to our areas of responsibility. In a little bit of uh, coarse grade sandpaper candor, I guess it would sound like you're either adding to unity and oneness or you subtract from unity and oneness. And it's our choice which way it's going to be. What are we talking about? The church at its best. Luke, observing these believers after the day of Pentecost, says, you're not going to believe it, folks. They devoted themselves the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. Unity, harmony, oneness, and peace. They had everything in common. There was a mutual generosity. They had a loose grip on their material assets. And they'd share with one another. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. How many ever had a garage sale? Would you raise your hand? I don't mean you sold your garage. The stuff in the garage. You know that stuff becomes obsolete so it leaves the house and goes out in the garage? Evidently, occasionally we have to empty out the garage so there's room in the garage for the stuff in the house to make that rotation. You know that stuff you bought you didn't need? Obligating yourself for payments you couldn't afford to impress people you didn't like? <laughs> you ever play that game? They had a garage sale, and what did they do with the proceeds? Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. The only requirement for someone to be the recipient of their generosity was a verifiable need. There wasn't a triplicate questionnaire for them to fill out to qualify. A verifiable need. I would be a bit surprised but within a reasonable distance of where you live or where you worship, there's somebody in your neighborhood with a verifiable need. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. What's that all about? Best study I could come up with was the Dayberg Devotions. Before they dispersed for their day's responsibilities, they'd gather on the patio outside the temple. The Jews wouldn't let them go inside the temple for their Christian meetings, so they met on the patio. Familiar, large, spacious place, common gathering. 
And they'd chat a hymn and they'd pray together. They'd read the scriptures. They'd encourage one another. They'd exchange information of mutual interest and concern. And then they'd disperse for their day's responsibility. Luke, in my imagination, goes around with a yellow tablet and a pen taking notes on how these folks behaved and how their lives and priorities were so radically rearranged after the day of Pentecost. And in his report he says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. In some churches where I preach, they think they're doing real well to have a Sunday through Wednesday revival and have half the folks there half the time. I heard about one pastor who got pretty bold and brassy during a Sunday morning message. Got red in the face and kind of aggressive. He said, the problem in this church is ignorance and apathy. Two guys sitting on the back row, one punched the other and said, what's that mean? The other guy said, I don't know and I don't care. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They gave priority to spiritual nutrition. And I'm glad we've set aside these services for these few days to gather together for spiritual enrichment. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There's one thing on this list we're really doing well. Got the potlucks down perfect. One guy asked me, how can you tell if it's a Nazarene going to heaven? I said, I don't know. He said, he's the one with a covered dish. One thing on this list we're doing well. Got the eating part down perfect. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the bottom line concluding sentence of Luke's observation of these folks' behavior was, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I don't know what the duration of that observation was, how long that lasted, how consistent it was. But during his time of observation and note taking, he said, through the influence of that group of believers, every day somebody got saved. In the church where you attend on Sunday, how long has it been since somebody outside the walls of that local church constituency was reached for the Lord, heard the gospel, believed, received Jesus as Savior, was born again and baptized and immersed in the local fellowship of that body of believers? I was preaching in Phoenix one day and a guy came to me after the service of that revival and he said, Norman, how many churches do you preach in in a year? <clears throat> I said, about 50%. He said, what do you mean? I said, the other half are clubs that think they're a church. A club <clears throat> spends its time and energy and money on self-indulgent interests in the pursuit of their own agenda. A church is a militant army trained as it gathers together for worship and is dispersed to make an impact in a hurt and needy world. And as you continue your preparation for ministry and anticipate the time when you step across the threshold in that full-time activity of service, let's remember, Kellogg's in business to make cereal and the church in business to make disciples. And the high watermark that I found in scripture is here in Acts chapter 2 where the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. 
Several years back, my wife and daughter, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, made a car trip from Southern California all the way across to Huntington, West Virginia. My wife was born there, and her two sets of grandparents were still there, and there was a summer celebration for her grandparents' 60th wedding anniversary. And a cooperative husband and son-in-law will make those sojourns, you know? I remember Sunday afternoon, we got home from church, had a chicken dinner at Grandma and Grandpa's house, and the phone rang, and my mother-in-law answered the phone. It was her brother, lived out in the country, Uncle Don. You got a minute? I want to tell you about Uncle Don. He's a good old middle-of-the-road Baptist. But in West Virginia, Baptist doesn't have a B. It didn't have a P, it had two Bs. He's a Baptist. And in West Virginia, believe only had one syllable, believe. <laughs> Uncle Don was a Baptist who believed. And he asked to talk to me. And my mother-in-law yelled through the house, Norman, the phone's for you. I said, who in the world's calling me here in Huntington, West Virginia? I picked up the phone and Uncle Don says, I want to tell you about my neighbor, Belvie. Lives across the street. Terminal heart disease. Doc sent him home from the hospital for a few days so he could be with the family before it's all over. He didn't know anything about God or the church. He said, I tried to witness to him the best I know how. But I think he might be ready to listen to somebody like you if you wouldn't mind coming out. I said, we'll be right there. Hung up on the phone, got the family in the car and drove out the country road, parked in the driveway adjacent their mobile home, walked across the street with Uncle Don up on the front porch of Bellevue Pierce's mobile home, knocked on the screen door, and he answered. Big, tall fellow, about six, six, seven, but really thin, about only 180. His hair was all messed up. All seven of them. <laughs> Hadn't shaved that day, or the day before, or the day before. In one corner of his mouth, he had a cigarette with the ashes about to drop off on the floor. Now the other corner of his mouth, he greeted us. He said, hi, boys, come on in. And when he spoke to us, it was obvious he left his teeth in on the sink. He was wearing some polyester Walmart pajamas and he was barefoot and his toenails were long overdue. He opened the screen door and we stepped inside and I was immediately attacked by a Doberman Pincher Poodle. <laughs> Ever seen that breed? The place was full of Sunday afternoon visitors, tobacco smoke and beer cans. And I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere in that situation, so I just turned around and said, let's go out on the front porch where we can be alone and talk. Now, out on the front porch, he had a 1952 sheet metal glider swing. You know what I'm talking about? It's a swing you sit on on the front porch, and in the south, you sip on a sweet tea or a lemonade, and you say something like, boy, it was hot today. I wonder if it's going to rain. Well, if three of you are going to sit on one of those things at the same time, it's mighty important to get this motion coordinated. <laughs> Otherwise, you throw your back out and you do some moves that are against the manual, I guarantee you. <laughs> I thought Belvedere was going to check out right there on the porch. After the swing simmered down and our nausea subsided, 
we got acquainted. And inch at a time, I bent the conversation to the Lord and the gospel. I said, Belvy, I got some great news for you. God loves you. And he's got a plan for your life. Even now, he found that hard to believe. I talked to him about Jesus Christ, God's son, born of the Virgin Mary. His 33 years of sinless, perfect life of ministry and miracles and teaching and preaching. How he ended it all by going up on a hill outside the city limits of Jerusalem and was nailed to the cross where he suffered and bled and died and paid the price on Calvary so we could be saved and forgiven. I told him about how he was buried in a borrowed tomb and raised on the third day and going to come back and pick us up and take us home. He just stared at me like that was the first time he'd ever heard it in his life. Talked to him about sin and how it separates us from God and how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's none righteous, no, not one. and The wages of sin is death. And he quickly, immediately volunteered. He'd been quite a sinner in his day. I talked to him about confession, admitting to God what he already knows, and repentance, remorsefully, contritely, renouncing those wrongs and turning from them. Just stared at me. After a long time, I said, Bella, can you give me one good reason why you wouldn't want to pray right now and receive Jesus as your Savior? He quit staring at me, and he broke eye contact. And for a long silence, he stared at the green indoor-outdoor carpet on his front porch floor. And after a long silence, he lifted his head. And I saw a tear squeeze out the corner of his eye and it slowly crawled down through the stubble of his unshaved cheek until it finally disappeared into his multiple facial wrinkles. It left a shiny trail in the afternoon sunlight. He said, nope. I said, would you like to pray right now? He said, yep. And we bowed our head. And he repeated the sinner's prayer after me. It was saved on his front porch glider swing, just as genuinely as anybody's ever been saved at the church altar. Amen. I gave him my Bible and I said, start reading the Gospel of John. And I told Belvy and Uncle Don, you guys get together in a good Bible preaching church. Well, we got home but California. I was sitting at my desk a couple weeks later, opened the day's mail, and out of one of those envelopes, there fell a clipping on my desk blotter from the Huntington Daily News, the obituaries. Belvy Pierce had moved from Huntington to heaven. Less than three weeks from when we sat together on his front porch swing. And as sure as I'm standing here tonight, the Lord whispered to my heart, Acts 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And he'd like to do it again. He'd like to do it through you in your ministry now and in your future ministries together.
the church at its best as an influence in other folks' lives for time and for eternity. And I salute Nazarene Bible College faculty and staff, administration, President Graves, Mrs. Graves, and you students for your hot-hearted, sincere, and conscientious pursuit of this divine calling. Please stand with me and bow your heads. Luke documents what it looked like after those folks were sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Is there something you and the Lord need to talk about regarding your personal ministry and your future? We're going to share a course. And again, I offer a cordial invitation for those who need to, to join us for a time of prayer here at the altar. closer to the time we'll leave this world and stand in God's presence and give an account for how we've lived our lives. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for things done while in the body whether good or bad. Every 24 hours that passes you and I have an ever shrinking window of opportunity through which we can have an impact for Christ and for souls. Let's take full advantage of this service this evening and let our hearts respond to the interior tug of the Holy Spirit. And if you and the Lord need to have a talk about where you are in your call and your preparation in your future ministry, you will never have a better time than now or a better place than here to tag up with the Lord on his plans for you. Every once in a while, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to pull out a wrench from his toolbox and tighten up the nuts and bolts on our dedication and our commitment and give us a stronger grip on our purpose and our calling. I'm going to sing a chorus again. If you need to pray, you may come. Lord, hear our together. 
Those remaining at your seats, you may be prefer to be seated. We'll not dismiss until our prayer time. Father, we thank you for the obvious presence of your Holy Spirit. We appreciate the way he's talked to us from the Word. And our attentions have been drawn to our own ministries, our callings, priorities, purposes. Thank you, Lord, for this account in Acts 2. I pray, Lord, that you'd help each of us to position ourselves or you could use us to make disciples and see the Lord add daily those who are being saved. Whatever corrections and improvements, whatever adjustments and changes you want to make in us, that we would be tuned up to maximum effectiveness and efficiency for you and your purposes. I pray that you'd help us to be cooperative with you and compliant. Help us beyond our rationalizations and our denials and our delays and procrastinations. And say an uncompromised yes to you and take the tactical action, the next step in becoming all that you've dreamed that we could become. Pray for these who are kneeling here. You know the reasons why they've come the issues on their hearts and minds. Bring victory to each heart. And thank you for these special days together. Go with those who be leaving and remain with us who stay to pray. And be glorified through it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless every one of you. You may be dismissed.